Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so, so enthralled in our hearts with Your glory and Your greatness and who You are. You are truly a God of amazing love. How can it be that our God in Christ would die for us, that the eternal Son of God would come into the world to save sinners such as us, that by faith in His name we can have life and have it abundantly. Father, especially this morning, we reflect upon that. Father, may you, through your Spirit and your Word, evoke in us a greater desire and passion to worship you, to magnify your great name through the preaching and listening and application of your Word as we respond in worship and devotion and that our affections would be moved towards a greater sense of mission here in this world, both in Word and by means of our example. Lord, I pray that this morning you would comfort those who need to be comforted, that you would convict those who are living in sin and need to repent of that and be renewed again to walking in holiness and righteousness of the truth. I pray, Father, that you would continue to be with our country, that, Lord, you would use the circumstances that are taking place here in America and all over the world to bring people to repentance from their sins and that they would seek the only hope that there is, and His name is Jesus. Father, I pray for this. I pray that today as preachers and this weekend as preachers all over the world preach the true gospel, that, Lord, You would save many, that You would build up Your people, that You would, Lord, continue to add worshipers to that wonderful heavenly choir in the future made up of people of every tongue, nation, and tribe who will exalt Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray for your blessing upon this time. May we have soft and tender hearts to your word. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 26 is our text. And if you are able to stand with me, please do so in honor of God's word. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 26. Always remember that this is God's Word. Amen? Amen. Verse 22. While they were eating, He took some bread, that is Jesus, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is My body. And when He had given or taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is Christ Our Passover. Christ Our Passover. And today, as it's been already mentioned, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's so fitting, isn't it, that based upon just a passage we just read, that we would focus on this passage which focuses our attention on what we might call the first ever communion as we know it, the Lord's Supper. And so we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper after the sermon today. This will allow us to reflect deeper on the truths that we're going to be looking at and the significance of what Jesus institutes here. Now, I understand <coughs> excuse me, mo- that most of you and I think it's safe to assume this, that most of you are very familiar 
with what the Lord's Supper is, of its importance and of its significance. Uh, many of you have been walking with the Lord for many, many years, and whether here at Calvary or other places, other churches, um, there has been a, a high priority placed on the Lord's Supper or of communion. So you're very familiar with the Lord's Supper. For others of us, perhaps not so much. Either way, wherever you're at, and even between and some part of that spectrum, this is a super important issue to contemplate for us. You know, I just had a wonderful time this week. It's been so enriching to my heart to be reminded of the significance and the importance of this great event here in the upper room and Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And so I pray it's going to be enriching for you as well as you contemplate and ponder the significance of this. As most of you know, there are two ordinances that Jesus has given his church to continually observe. What are those two ordinances? This is an Awana question for some of the kids, right? What are those two? Heard baptism, right? Believer's baptism and communion. Believer's baptism, that great act of obedience, what we do right behind me, the waters of baptism, it's this act of obedience that symbolizes what has already taken place in your heart when God saves you. You are publicly testifying in the waters of baptism what God has already done in your heart and His saving grace. Believer's baptism. Secondly, the other one is communion. Or the Lord's Supper is that other significant um, ordinance that Jesus has given us to continually observe. We are commanded to observe these ordinances. Believer's baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper. And they are equally important. And yet, at least in my own experience, I have found over the years, unfortunately, that many Christians hardly ever think deeply about, the, about communion, hardly ever ponder deeply the significance of the Lord's Supper. Furthermore, I'm pretty, fairly well connected to many churches that either don't regularly practice communion, believe it or not, or who treat the Lord's Supper very haphazardly. Maybe they don't even... Um, in the midst of the busyness of the last year to a year and a half, especially with COVID, they've really neglected this area of ministry, of the obedience of the ordinance of communion or the Lord's Supper. And as you examine your own heart and you think about how important is communion or the Lord's Supper to me, I want you to just ask yourself, when was the last time that you spent your whole week anticipating the fact that, for instance, today we were going to celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper. That you just couldn't wait. Your heart was so full of anticipation as you came into the Sunday morning worship service, even today, because you knew from Monday or Tuesday when that email went out from Ruth initially, putting out the fact that this is communion Sunday, you were pondering this great event today. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but the reality is, probably most of us didn't really think about that moving, coming into this Sunday morning. Or even during COVID. This is kind of eye-opening. It's especially in its initial stages with COVID and all that was going on a year and a half ago or so. When we were not able to assemble together as a church or as churches, how big of a deal was it to you? that one of the key things that we weren't able to do was celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper. How much did you think about that over the past 
or especially last year when things um, were difficult as they were with this whole COVID situation? Was it just a passing thought for you? Or were you really chomping at the best to get back to assemble together with your brethren so that one of the things that you could get to do again was celebrate communion and the Lord's Supper together as a community? All of this highlights, I think, the importance of why we should contemplate this passage. Why, beloved, we should listen carefully to what Jesus does here so that it it fuels us in our worship and even our greater sense of, of just honoring this event that we celebrate, at least in our church, once a month, sometimes more, communion or the Lord's Supper. You see, in this emotion-packed Passover meal, amongst many other things that Jesus did, as we saw the last couple of Sundays, one of the key events that Jesus had to do was to celebrate the first ever communion or Lord's Supper with His disciples. He had to do this. He had to institute this Lord's Supper. Now, when did this happen? Consider first with me the setting of this Lord's Supper. When did this happen? Well, it happened during the time that they were eating. That's what verse 22 tells us. That the instituting of the Lord's Supper, or of communion as we know it, verse 22, happened sometime while they were eating. Remember, they're in this upper room. Some believe that this upper room is the home of John Mark. That's not a slam dunk at all. Whoever's home this is, this is a very spacious place from what Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that would seat 10 to 25 people. This is a big room, fully furnished. And so Jesus is having this Passover meal with his disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, eventually in this upper room, maybe with some servants around who are serving the food and the different elements and all of that. Mark simply tells us that this Passover meal was being celebrated and Jesus proceeded to basically institute this wonderful thing that we refer to as the Lord's Supper. And you know, the Passover meal, they commemorated Israel's deliverance. They're exiting from Egypt some 1,500 years before this particular text. The people, the Israelites have been as ordained by God, as commanded by God. They've been remembering God's great deliverance of Israel at the hands of the Egyptians. And it was a long meal, as we've said, commemorating God's wonderful, amazing power and deliverance of His people. I mentioned last week that the meal would include various aspects, and there's been so much written, so much debate about the details of what this particular Passover meal over the decades and centuries has entailed. But there was at least a prayer of thanks and blessing for the Passover meal at the beginning. And then either at the beginning or throughout the meal, there was a retelling of the event of God's deliverance of Israel. Then they would partake of the first ceremonial cup of wine. Out of one cup, by the way, they would all drink the ceremonial cup. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, there was also the ceremonial washing of hands, symbolic of holiness or purity. There was the flat bread that would be distributed and then dipped into a special sauce and and consumed. Then there was the singing of the first part of the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113, 114, and 115. Then the ceremonial partaking of the second cup of wine would follow. Then, everyone's favorite part, of course, the main meal, the eating of the delicious lamb that would be enjoyed over long conversation. Remember, you're talking about at least six hours 
of a long meal where they are in a posture of reclining and they would lie on their side as they're conversing. It was a very intimate setting. And so they're enjoying this wonderful meal together, Jesus and his disciples. Then that would be followed by the third cup of wine. Then the singing of the last half of the Hallel Psalm, Psalms 116, 117, and 118. Then one last or, or fourth ceremonial drink of wine. And then there would be the conclusion with one last song. Now, as I mentioned, there's so much debate about the details of the, and the precise timing of all of this, the, the Passover meal. But the important thing is that it happened, right? It happened. And Jesus had to have this last meal with his disciples. And so it's at some point during the course of this meal, this long five, six hour meal that Jesus presiding over this great meal stood up. He stood up from his reclined position to address his disciples minus Judas Iscariot by this point when this happens. Consider next with me the symbols of the Lord's Supper. The symbols of the Lord's Supper. And I want you to think about how monumental this event really was here in the upper room. Think about this. For 1,500 years or so, most Conservative Bible students believe that the Exodus took place around 1446 B.C. So for 1,500 years or so, since that time, the Israelites were ordered by God to celebrate this Passover meal in commemoration of His great deliverance and His great power and His great compassion and mercy towards the Israelites. 1,500 years they've been doing this. And now Jesus takes the very elements that, that they've, they've been used to um, uh, partaking over this Passover meal, and he transitions his disciples to something greater, to something better, to the ultimate fulfillment of what God had intended from the Old Testament in this Passover meal. Who gave Jesus the right to do this? Who does Jesus think he is? Well, What has Mark told us? He is God. He is the God-man. And here again is another example of the degree of the unrivaled authority and the uniqueness and exclusivity of the person and the work of Jesus here that only someone who is more than just a human can do this. Someone who is God, the God-man, He is the only one who can do this here. This instituting of the Lord's Supper, this transition from the Passover meal to communion, to the first communion. So notice verse 22, while they were eating, he took some bread. That was the flat bread that would be dipped in that special dip or sauce. And after a blessing, that is the giving of thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and said, "Take, take it. This is my body. Notice all of the actions. He broke it and gave it to them. He blessed it before that. Take it, this is my body. All of those actions point to Jesus as the source of the blessing here and signify the identif- their identification, these disciples, with Jesus as symbolized by these elements here. In case you're wondering, the breaking of the bread here doesn't have some mystical, special meaning. He simply broke it in order to distribute the bread. 
Give them each a piece of this flat bread. Now listen, as Jesus does this, his disciples would have understood that Jesus wasn't speaking here literally of his physical body. In other words, consume my body. Eat my flesh. That would be cannibalism, wouldn't it? They knew that Jesus, throughout his ministry, they watched him. They've walked with him. They've seen his great miracles. Oftentimes, Jesus would use figurative language. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Right? I am the resurrection and the life. That one was literal. I am the bread of life. All of those were figurative. That was all figurative, symbolic language. And even in the Passover meal, think about this. There was great symbolism there. The unleavened bread, amongst other things, symbolized their hurried exit from Egypt. Bitter herbs in the Passover meal symbolized the the bitter tears that the Israelites cried while they were enslaved in Egypt. His disciples understand symbolism. They understand this. And they understand that what Jesus is very simply saying is, this bread represents my body. This bread represents my body. And this is huge, isn't it? This is huge. The focus, as they were to move forward as followers of Jesus and in their Christian lives, even as physically Jesus would depart from them and ascend to the right hand of the Father, was now to commemorate His sacrifice, the giving of Himself as a substitute for sinners who deserve hell and condemnation. This is what they were to focus upon now. Remember our theme verse, Mark 10, 45? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came, to give himself as a substitute in the place of sinners, to pay for sins. Mark has been telling us that throughout the gospel, he's been moving us in the direction of the cross, to the cross very quickly, because he wants us to understand this. What Jesus says, as you celebrate communion into the future, as you partake of this bread, remember the substitutionary atonement that I accomplished. Remember me. And he would suffer greatly, wouldn't he? He would give of his life. We're going to be talking about this in the next few weeks, seeing how much Jesus suffered, how much he was, he was ridiculed, how much he was beaten and spit upon. Why? For his own sins? No, for our sins, for our personal sins, this happened. Such as that Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 puts it this way. Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And Isaiah 53 verse 10. But the Lord Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It was the Lord Jesus who gave of his life. And in that very giving of his life, Jesus suffered greatly. He would undergo great physical suffering for us, beloved, who trusted in him. He absorbed God's punishment for us, for undeserving sinners who deserve hell and condemnation. This is to become now the focus of their attention every time they celebrate this. Now, did you notice he broke the bread and gave it to them and said, Take it. How many breads is there? 
one, right? And he's giving out pieces to them, which represents the giving of himself. And all of them partake of this one bread, ultimately. And that imagery is so important, isn't it? There's a wonderful picture of, A, our unity in Christ in Holy Communion, in the Lord's Supper, and B, the unity that we have with one another as one body, as one temple, as one holy people, as one holy community in Christ. That's so beautiful. There's also a sense of invitation here, isn't there? He said, take it. It's a free and kind offer from Christ for anyone who receives it. And all they have to do is just receive it. Receive it. What we need to remember is that all of this is greatly significant. Listen, at this first communion, Jesus is picturing our unity with himself, the one who offers himself freely for the sins of people. But also he's reminding them and us of our unity and fellowship with one another in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, we read these words. Since there is one body, or one bread, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. That's an emphasis there of, of the unity that we share in Christ as believers. That we are one. And we are to walk in a unified manner. Now again, taken at face value, all of this is symbolic. You say, Pastor, how do you know? Well, Luke 22 verse 19, the parallel account to this records Jesus saying this, do this, partake of this bread and the cup later on in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. Same later on, some 30 years later, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthian church, that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Now you may think, well, what's the big deal in emphasizing this language of remembrance? Well, that language, that terminology to remember is so important, beloved. Because there are those who take different views regarding the elements of the Lord's Supper. In an effort to emphasize the real bodily, emphasize that, the real bodily presence of Christ during communion, during the Lord's Supper, some people, frankly, go way too far in church history. And the first one of these views is even blasphemous. It's called transubstantiation. A transubstantiation view of the Lord's Supper. It's held by the Roman Catholic Church, as many of you know. I grew up in Mexico City, going to a Roman Catholic church and attending Mass and all of that. And it's really what happens during the Mass. And this view of transubstantiation held by the Roman Catholic Church says that upon the blessing or giving of thanks by the Roman Catholic priest at Mass, the bread and the cup become or are transformed into the real physical body and blood of Christ. Yes, what that means is that when you partake of the elements, you are quite literally, according to their view, eating of the physical body of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. Now, I didn't even understand this as a little kid. Remember, I was there until the age of seven in Mexico City as a kid, going to the, one of the biggest Catholic cathedrals in Mexico City in the world. 
And I remember when the priest would put that object in my mouth, little did I know, I'm thinking, this is really boring, first of all. I can't understand anything these priests are saying. Everybody seems so sad. Everybody seems so guilt-ridden. And many other thoughts. But one of those things was just totally ignorant about this. Totally ignorant about what they were doing. Do you know what the heart of the problem is with this view, this transubstantiation view? That in essence... What they are doing in the Catholic Mass is a continual repetition of the sacrifice of Christ again and again and again. It's as if Jesus is once again in that Mass dying again and again and again and again. You can see how at its core, this is a distortion, a denial of the once-for-all sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And in the Roman Catholic Church, Mass is an essential meritorious work. In the Roman Catholic Church, it's considered a mortal sin to miss Mass on Sundays unless you're terribly ill or dead, as one Catholic friend that I have would testify. It's pretty serious to miss Mass. All right, now not everyone goes that far as transubstantiation. There's a middle ground position called consubstantiation consubstantiation. This view is commonly held by Lutherans going after, uh, following after the tradition of Martin Luther. It's one of the major points where Zwingli and Luther would duke it out with each other and a few hundred years ago. And those who hold to this view of consubstantiation don't go nearly as far, but they would say that the body and the blood of Christ are mysteriously in a manner we can't explain and supernaturally not of us united with the unchanged elements. The con part there in consubstantiation has the sense of, of with or joined together. In other words, that the elements join together in some mysterious, unexplainable way with the body and the blood of Christ. Those who hold to this view generally believe that the elements remain the same but somehow, in an unexplainable manner, the elements become one with Christ as you partake. Again, the effort in all of this and other views is to emphasize the real bodily presence of Christ at the Lord's table. Third view, the spiritual presence view. The spiritual presence view. Some Reformed Christians hold to this view. I think it was especially towards the end of his life, Zwingli's view, um, as he articulated it which says that the the natural elements are instrumentally used. In other words, the bread and the wine are instruments to convey the spiritual presence of Christ to the partaker through faith. Note that. Not the physical presence of Christ, but the spiritual presence of Christ that is there when we partake of the Lord's Supper. That we're reminded, is what they say, during the Lord's Supper that Jesus is really spiritually with us, which, of course, it's true, right? Jesus is with us in a spiritual way. Of course, we can all say that Jesus is spiritually with us in more than just communion. He's with us at all times as believers, not just during the elements of communion or the Lord's Supper. He's always with us. But we would agree that Jesus, later on, when we celebrate, and even right now in the present, Christ is with us in a spiritual sense. He's always with his people. Okay, pastor, that's enough of that. After that whole spiel, what does 
Calvary hold to? What does our church hold to? I'm glad you asked. Here at Calvary, we hold to what is called a symbolic, different names. There's some people refer to this as say symbolic or representative or memorial view of the Lord's Supper or of communion. Sometimes people refer to this as the remembrance view, the commemorative view. This is the memorial view. We hold to this view. It's what Scripture says it is. Luke twenty two nineteen. Do this in what? Remembrance of me. And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Later on, Paul, do this in remembrance of me, said Jesus. It's a memorial. It's a remembering of the atonement accomplished by Christ at the cross of Calvary. And flowing from that, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and communion, we we're reminded of His amazing grace and all of the spiritual blessings that God has given to us in Christ Jesus alone, in His Son. And so it's obvious here that Jesus was not meaning, hey guys, eat me literally. He wasn't meaning that. And by the way, the Old Testament forbid the drinking of blood. Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 through 4, Leviticus 17, 14. So Jesus couldn't be saying that. That's not to say, for those of you who are wondering and who love to eat a good steak, that's not to say that you cannot have your steak medium rare, okay? Maybe some of you are already wondering, and don't pass out right now, okay? Yesterday, we had my whole extended family over. It was just a sweet time. Made burgers and hot dogs for them and all of that. And a couple of the family members came out and they're like, can you, can you make some of those a little bit medium rare? Because I tend to overcook my hamburgers, my patties. So can, can we get a couple of those medium rare? I say, sure, you could do that. I want you to know I wasn't in outrage after studying this during the week, okay? I was going to give them what they wanted. Why? Because under... Now, in the New Testament, we are free from the law so that it's okay for you to have your steak medium rare or even rare if you like that kind of a thing, okay? Have at it. The rest of us like, like our steaks well done. Thank you very much, okay? Oh, man. Disunity all of a sudden because of this. Remember, brethren, we're talking about unity and communion, okay? Well, you get the point. The disciples would understand that the bread and the cup later on, Jesus is speaking figuratively here as representing himself. And that goes for the second symbol, the second element. Look at verse 23. And when Jesus had taken a cup, speaking of the cup of wine, and given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. Most believe that he would have done this during the ceremonial third cup of blessing, potentially. We don't know that for sure. But Luke twenty two twenty does say that in the same way he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is, note, the new covenant in my blood. Luke twenty two twenty. Boy, that mention of the new covenant is highly significant. And then in our text, Mark fourteen twenty four, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for Many, many, a vast array of people will benefit one day from Jesus' substitutionary atonement. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Here's the great significance of what Jesus is doing. He's instituting something new, inaugurating something new, ratifying something new, and it's called the new covenant, according to Luke 22 and verse 20. 
Now, you know what a covenant is, right? It's an agreement. It's an understanding between two parties. It's a, it's a binding contract. The disciples understood the significance of a covenant. And they understood, especially the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant. They understood this. That the way that a covenant was ratified in the Old Testament was mediated, it was through animal sacrifices. The blood of atonement. Specifically in animal sacrifices. What would happen? A spotless animal will be brought to the priest and literally butchered. It was messy. It was bloody. You didn't want your kids around watching this stuff that the priest did, but many grew up watching this. They understood this. And the blood signified the death of that animal, the giving of life of that animal under the old covenant. That there was payment made. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Atonement has the idea of making payment, of paying a debt. Under the old covenant, the blood shed on the altar symbolized, listen, beloved, an atoning death. Something, namely an animal, substituting for you. It was payment for one's personal sins, intentional or unintentional. This was all part of the covenant or agreement, the Mosaic covenant between God and the Israelite. But hear me, this was temporary. This was a foreshadowing of the ultimate fulfillment that only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would accomplish sufficiently, Jesus Christ. It was a foreshadowing of the greater sacrifice. And what Jesus is now saying is, this cup now represents the giving of my life for the atonement of sins. Matthew 26, 28 says, for the forgiveness of sins. Amazing. Please mark that. Jesus' atoning death makes it possible, hearer, listener, for you to be forgiven of your sins on the basis of simple trust in Jesus alone. What an amazing gospel we have. Amen? That is good news for the greatest of sinners. And Jesus is saying, you are to focus now your attention on this. In fact, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, just for a couple of minutes, because I want you to see in Hebrews 10, the greater, better, more supreme sacrifice of Christ than anything that has come before under the old covenant. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11. The writer of Hebrews here is describing the old covenant system of sacrificial system. Verse 11, every priest... Stands daily, he says, under the old covenant, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Did you get that? Under the old covenant, there were literally thousands upon thousands of animals sacrificed. There were literally millions upon millions over the 1,500 years since God instructed the Israelites to follow this pattern. 
In the sacrificial system, millions and millions of animal sacrifices were offered on that altar, but none of them could take away sins. None of them could. You can imagine, as the disciples are sitting here, they understand to some extent or another these things, and that none of those sacrifices were enough. None of those sacrifices were sufficient to deal with sin. But oh, there's now one whose sacrifice is enough, is sufficient, and that is the sacrifice of Christ. Just focus on that. Look at verse 12. But he, Christ, he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, namely himself, what? Set down at the right hand of God. For a priest, for a priest, brothers and sisters, to sit down under the old covenant was unheard of. They would never rest. It was a revolving door of priests filling in that office of slain animal after animal after animal after animal. Why? Because sin is unending and people are imperfect and people are flawed. So blood had to continually be spilled. Priest after priest after priest after priest. Animal after animal after animal after animal. None of those sacrifices were sufficient. But Jesus, through the writer of Hebrews, says, I have something much better for you. Look at verse 14. For by one offering, namely Jesus' death, He, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And then look at verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's one of my favorite little verses right there. Verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, if you've put your trust in Jesus' sacrifice and you believe that Jesus 2,000 years ago went to the cross and absorbed God's wrath on your behalf for your sins, you can rest. You are forgiven. There's no more need to live guilt-ridden. Unless you're living in sin, and then God will never leave you comfortable as his child. So you need to repent of that sin and be renewed and be reminded of forgiveness again. But I love that. Christ is enough. You don't need to add or supplement to Jesus' sacrifice. And throughout the book of Hebrews, this is the writer of Hebrews' point. Christ is greater. Christ is much, much better. Better than Moses. Better than the Old Testament. Better than the Old Testament covenant. Better than the angels. Better than high priests, human high priests who are flawed. Better than the animal sacrifices. Jesus is better. If you have Christ, you have it all. Amen? He is sufficient. Jesus is enough. You stand in Christ genuinely from the heart. You have forgiveness of sins and security in Christ. He is the great fountain of living waters. If you drank from Him, you'll never be thirsty again. Praise be to God, beloved. Amen? For His grace and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Praise be to God for His glorious gospel, this, this good news. And this is why, even living in today's day and age, the gospel, the good news of the person and the work of Jesus, needs to be our sole preoccupation, brothers and sisters. Our central focus, not other peripheral matters like vaccinations and duking it out over that issue 
or mask wearing or non-mask wearing or socio-political issues and what to do about all of that and how much how active should Christians be and all of that. Those are good things to be discussing, good things to be wrestling with the principles of God's word and how they apply to those things that are freedom issues. But our central focus needs to be on Christ and his good news. Only he, he will usher in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and none of those things will ever exist anymore. Why do we focus on secondary peripheral matters? It's almost as if the gospel is a footnote on the story of our life right now rather than the main theme of our whole life. Share the gospel. Jesus, even through the through the this wonderful instituting of the Lord's Supper says, focus on me. I'm inaugurating a new thing here, a better thing. And these symbols represent my atoning work. Now watch this. Jesus' death, as pictured by these symbols, I was contemplating this, as pictured by these elements, is highlights a number of glorious truths about what Christ did. Or this particular death. Here are three glorious truths about Jesus' death. Ready? It's a substitutionary death. When we come to the Lord's table, we focus upon the fact that Jesus died as our substitute. He died in the place of sinners. It is we who deserve to die and be punished for our sins. But what did Jesus do? He took our place. He took our place. Who does that? You like taking the place of somebody else, taking their punishment? We don't naturally, we're not wired as sinful human beings to do that. Especially for somebody who is unrighteous and unjust. But Jesus took the place of rebel sinners on the cross because of his great love and grace. So it's a substitutionary death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God the Father, made him, Jesus, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Two glorious things about 2 Corinthians 5.21 happening there. Jesus, Jesus, in salvation, our sins are placed or transferred upon Jesus and his righteousness is placed upon us. Beloved, it doesn't get any better than that, right? It's the great exchange. It's double imputation. That in salvation, our sins are transferred to Jesus, even though he's blameless, even though he's perfect, he didn't deserve to die, and his righteousness, his perfect life, his atoning death is placed upon us. It doesn't get any better than that good news for sinners. And that's what we recall at the Lord's table, that Jesus took our place in such a way that our sin is imputed or placed upon him or was And in turn, his righteousness was imputed and placed upon us. Double imputation, double transfer. What a glorious truth. There's some lame old so-called pastors right now trying to dismiss this doctrine of double imputation. What pathetic guys. Tell you that right now. I'm not going to go off on that that tangent. His His death is also an atoning death. Not just a substitutionary death, but an atoning death. What does that mean? That when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, he was not dying for his own sins. He suffered and died for our sins. He paid, made payment for our sins. 
He gave himself as a ransom for many. First Peter 2.24 And he himself bore or carried our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus didn't die on the cross carrying his own sins. Jesus died on the cross taking our sins. He is the great sin bearer of sinners such as us. He paid for sins. Third, Jesus' death is also a propitiatory death. Okay, we say, what in the world is that? Propitiation. That his sacrificial death was a a wrath-removing sacrifice. By virtue of his death on the cross and bearing our sins, Jesus took upon the fullness of the Father's wrath for our sins. And in Jesus' death, God accepted Jesus' death as sufficient, as enough. Propitiation means that Jesus removed God's wrath that was aimed in our direction by faith in him. Propitiation, it's a wrath-removing sacrifice. Remember on the cross, when Jesus cried out to God the Father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What was happening in that moment? There's all kinds of theories about that. I'll tell you what was happening in that moment. Jesus, for the first time ever in eternity, was experiencing estrangement, a separation from his Father, not because of his own sins, but because God was punishing Jesus for our sins on the cross. This is what is called penal substitution, that Christ died in our place and paid the penalty for our sins. He took our place and took our penalty. Penal substitution. Jesus went through that. Jesus went through all of that. And we're going to dissect that in the next few weeks. He went through all of that suffering to satisfy the just wrath of God for our sins. So that in turn, brethren, God can give us free forgiveness, eternal life, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Heaven itself by faith. Isn't that glorious? He had to punish sin. God did. Otherwise, he he was not a just judge. Who did he punish? He punished Christ, his own son, who took his wrath and God's righteous punishment upon himself, satisfying God's wrath on our behalf. Contemplate that. Even as we prepare for the Lord's Supper in a little while. When we come to the Lord's table, brothers and sisters, these are some of the glorious truths that we ponder and we exult in. Amen? 1 Corinthians 5.7 puts it this way. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover, who has been sacrificed. This is New Covenant language. Emphasizing that in Christ now, it's now Christ who becomes the focus of the communion time. By virtue of his once-for-all sacrifice for sins. He is greater. He's more supreme. He is better than anything else. And that's the reason why, brothers and sisters, Christ is worthy of our faith and trust. Christ is worthy of our love and heartfelt devotion. Christ is worthy of our service in the church. Christ is worthy of our faithful witness to a lost and dying world. By virtue of what he's done, he is our Passover. We need to proclaim that message of Jesus to a lost world. And so notice Jesus transitions here, transitions his disciples and future disciples from 1,500 years or so of Passover meals commemorating God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt to now the commemoration of God's deliverance of sinners from their sin, all in the person and the work of King Jesus. 
We are the recipients of that. Notice last. Consider third, the significance of the Lord's Supper. The significance of the Lord's Supper. We've seen some of this already in the significance, obviously. But Jesus reminds us in verse 25 of an added dimension of significance. And I don't think we think about this enough, especially when we come to the Lord's table. Verse 25, truly I say to you. Again, this is another one of those statements of certainty. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day. Notice, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Matthew's account says, until that day when I drink it new with you, his disciples first and foremost there, and future disciples of course, until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew twenty six twenty nine. Boy, that's amazing and comforting truth for them, isn't it? We don't often think about this enough. But you know what Jesus is saying here? And by application for us future disciples, one day in my kingdom, we will partake of this again. One day we will have another meal. Soon we'll be together again, dining together. And later on in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, the significance of the Lord's Supper is the wondrous contemplation and proclamation of the death of Christ, our amazing redemption accomplished by Jesus. But listen to me. Also... The Lord's Supper is the ongoing reminder that one day in the future, no matter how bad things get in this world, we will be with Christ, reign with Christ, and dine with Him in the ultimate great great banquet in the millennial kingdom on earth. Isn't that glorious? What wonderful comfort that must have been for the disciples. He was going to die. To some extent or another, this is beginning to grip them. But Jesus reminds them, we'll be together again in my millennial kingdom. What hope, what security they must have had at that moment. And it should too for us. Verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That would have been most likely Psalm 118 that they would have sung. The last of those Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118, they would have sung Psalm 118. But boy, their hearts must have been just full after that Passover meal, right? They would never again celebrate the same type of meal. And from now on, the focus would no longer be on animal sacrifices, but for them who were followers of Jesus, on Christ their Passover, on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How glorious. How glorious what Jesus did here. Well, with that, with that, I hope that your heart is prepared to receive or to partake of the Lord's Supper. Amen? This is going to be our focus at this time. We too are going to partake of the Lord's Supper or of communion. So, And I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We've already quoted this text a number of times, but it's worthy of... Again, being read and contemplated. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. And as you turn there, remember that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper also, it's a time of humble confession, isn't it? Time of humble confession. And we don't confess our sins during this time so that we might be worthy 
of receiving God's grace, we are already the recipients of God's grace in Christ Jesus, beloved. He has abundantly shed his grace upon us in Christ. So what are we doing in confession? We are acknowledging our sins and recalling that the reason why Christ died for us is not only to deliver us from condemnation, but also from the destructive power of our sin, right? And so we confess our sins. We are reminded again that Jesus died to deliver us from the penalty of our sin, but also from its power so that we should no longer be living in sin, in known unrepentant sin. This is a time for you. I want you to take a couple of few, few minutes or so to just talk to the Lord about that. Are there, are there things in your life, we're all weak, we're all fallible, none of us are perfect, but are there known sins, conscious sins that you need to repent of? Whether that be a personal sin or maybe even a relational one. Are there those sins that you need to confess to the Lord right now? Take some time to do that. We also remember that the Lord's Supper is a time where forgiven sinners are joyful sinners. Amen? So it's not only a time of confession, but the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, is a great time of joyful celebration, isn't it? Contemplative, joyful celebration. Because if you've trusted in Christ, I want to remind you that you are no longer guilty before God. Isn't that amazing? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. If you put your faith in Christ, if you are a child of God today, there is no longer any condemnation for you. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ You are no longer an enemy of God. You are a friend of God. You are his child. Not only that, but beloved, if you're in Christ, you have eternal hope. Remember what Jesus just said? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus is going to return one day. Contemplate and ponder this. He's going to return one day to judge the living and the dead, but he's going to reign on earth, and you and I who've trusted in Christ will be with him. Amen? That is such a wonderful truth to remember So we confess our sins at this time, but we also celebrate because we have eternal security in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 8. Read that text. Maybe later today when you're contemplating our time today. Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from God's love, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, it was some 25 years later after our text in Mark 14 that the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Corinthian believers. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together, beloved. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink it, drink this bread, eat this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake together of the cup. Gracious Heavenly Father, 
Lord, what a monumental event in the life of our Lord Jesus. We tread on holy ground when we think about that upper room discourse and everything that transpired there. And Lord, we are so grateful to you for that great transition from the Passover meal, which commemorated your great deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, to then the ultimate fulfillment of your deliverance from sins in and through the person and the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord's Supper and Communion. Father, thank you for your grace. Father, I pray for this morning that you would, in all of our hearts, you would renew us, that you would restore us to yourself, that you would renew in us a steadfast spirit, that you would cause us to be reminded once again of the beautiful good news of Christ. Christ is the good news. And Lord, even now as we close, we want to sing about him. May our hearts burst forth in praise as we contemplate the greatness of who our Savior is. And even this week, help us to live out our mission on this earth of making disciples and in so doing, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.